I'm Rabbi Nicole Guzik. And I'm Rabbi Erez Sherman. And, and this, this is SinaiCast. Sinai Catch up with Sinai Temple's latest programs, speakers, exclusive content. Candid conversations and inspiring connections. Follow us now. Bringing Sinai wherever you go. All right, thank you all for being here tonight. Um, I, I was trying to accomplish four things with this book. First, the eight stories are really eight individuals. And the stories kind of stand on their own. Each of these people, in one way or another, is quite remarkable. And so the stories range from Theodore Herzl to Louis Brandeis, Chaim Weitzman, Vladimir Jabotinsky, Golda Meir, Ben Heck, Abba Ivan, and Ron Dermer. So eclectic uh, is a description of these people. I'm going to go through. I'm going to go through them briefly. Um, we'll cover the first four during the first hour, and then. Uh, Okay, let's let's start with um, with Theodore Herzl because I think all of us remember growing up that Herzl was this older man with this world class, world historical beard. He came up with the idea of a Jewish state, which kind of seemed a little obvious. And um, there was a story about how his book, The Jewish State, was written. The way the story goes, he was a foreign correspondent for a Viennese newspaper stationed in Paris at the time of the Dreyfus trial, when Dreyfus was convicted in an anti-Semitic trial based on trumped-up evidence, um, and uh, the pun one of the punishments, in, in addition to life imprisonment, was to be degraded in front of the public, which meant his sword was broken and his uniform was stripped of his medals, and it was a very degrading ceremony. And Herzl witnessed it as a reporter, and he heard the crowd, the crowd in Paris, the most enlightened city in Europe, uh, the place where the rights of man had been declared. They were shouting, death to the Jews. And from this, Herzl took the lesson that there was no future for the Jews in Europe and that anti-Semitism was endemic. And he went back to his home and wrote the Jewish state. That story is largely incorrect. Herzl was a foreign correspondent for um, the New Free Press of Vienna, which was sort of the New York Times of, of Europe. It was the most prestigious newspaper throughout the continent. Um, he was a foreign correspondent. He had been there four years. He did witness the Dreyfus uh, arrest and trial uh, and the crowds uh, that masked for his degradation but they did not say death to the Jews. They said death to the traitor. A couple people said death to Judas, but they did not express anti-Semitism to Jews as a people. And we know this trial didn't affect Herzl because we have access to his private diaries. We have access to the newspaper reports that he published. And in none of them, did he either repeat that phrase or say that anti-Semitism was a huge force in Paris? And we can double check not only his diaries and his reports, but the New York Times at the time, because the New York Times archives are all online all the way back to 1851. So you can look back and read the article on the Dreyfus trial. It wasn't until four years later that Emile Zola wrote Jacuz, saying that um, uh, Dreyfus had been set up. It didn't affect uh, Herzl at the time. So what did? It's a bit of a mystery. And you came here tonight, and I'm not going to tell you what the, what the, the, the answer to the mystery. And the reason I'm not is that I, 
it's not to sell you the book. You can get it for free if you can last throughout this lecture. Um, it, it's because it's it's because I want you to read it and to experience what I experienced, to see the story unfold in Herzl's words, in his letters, in his speeches, in his private diary, and to see how it happened. And the actual story is so much more interesting, so much more complicated, and so much more mysterious that it's an experience I'm hoping to share with the rest of you and wider people by, by writing this book. So that's Herzl. Then you move to the United States with Louis Brandeis. Brandeis grows up, he's born in Louisville, Kentucky, to Jewish parents who were immigrants from Prague. They gave him no Jewish education. They were not members of a synagogue. He did not have a bar mitzvah. He never went to, to shul throughout his childhood and adulthood. Um, he had no connection with the Jewish community. He went to Harvard Law School at the age of 18. He skipped college, went to Harvard Law School, graduated in two years, had the highest grades in the history of Harvard Law School, became an extremely successful lawyer, more or less invented the pro bono legal practice in America, would eventually become part of the Supreme Court in 1916, but he had no connection to the Jewish community. None, except, and this is where a new mystery comes in, in 1912, he meets one of Herzl's lieutenants who had moved to the United States at Herzl's suggestion to advance Zionism in America, which was a pretty tough assignment because American Jews were not at that time pro-Zionist. They weren't interested in history. They were interested in escaping history. America was their new Zion. They had no interest in going to Palestine. So to interest American Jews in Zionism, which was this kind of European foreign ideology, when in America, President Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt, was giving a famous address in, in 1905 saying hyphenated Americans, German Americans, Italian Americans, Jewish Americans, was disloyal to America. And the reason it was disloyal is because we had the ideal of the melting pot. Everybody would become an American. So trying to sell Zionism in America was quite a task. Brandeis took it on. And various biographers have various theories. Nobody has a real answer to why, except Jacob de Haas, this lieutenant of Herzl, comes by his office one day he, to talk about an insurance law issue that he's writing about for the Jewish advocate in Boston. He's the editor. And he says, is, is, is Louis Dembitz by any chance related to you? Louis Dembitz is the Dembitz of Louis Dembitz Brandeis and was a great Zionist back in the 1860s in America. And Brandeis tells Jacob de Haas why, yes, why do you ask? And he explains, and he explains Herzl. And the conversation goes on for an hour. And Brandeis decides to spend his entire summer reading up on Zionism, because that's, that's the kind of guy Brandeis was. And he read everything. And I tried to read what Brandeis read because there were a limited number of things one could read at that time. And when you read Zionist literature from back then, it jumps off the page. It has literary force. It has moral authority. It's beautifully written. And what it was in, in, in the words of one of the Zionist writers was a call to the educated Jew to do for their brethren in Europe what, what, what they had for themselves. And Brandeis got intrigued. And two years later, he takes over the leadership of the American Zionist movement, which has about 15,000 members in it. He quintuples it in five years. He makes it a force in politics. And, and this is really the interesting part of the story in this chapter, Brandeis develops a relationship with President Woodrow Wilson. 
that comes into play at the time Britain is trying to determine whether to issue the Balfour Declaration in 1917, the declaration that would say if Britain won the war against the Germany and its ally, the Ottoman Empire, Britain would facilitate a Jewish national home in Palestine. And but for Brandeis's discussion with, with Wilson and also with Balfour, when Balfour came to the United States, some people believe, and I think there's a lot to it, that there would not have been a Balfour Declaration. So Brandeis, the kid from Louisville, is essential to this story. Okay, then we move to, to Heim Weitzman. Heim Weitzman, maybe uh, maybe many of you remember the, the the picture of him standing next to President Truman in 1948. It's the day after Truman has recognized Israel 11 minutes after Ben-Gurion declares its independence. Weitzman is 72. He's in poor health, but he's a very statuesque figure, and he's nicely dressed, standing next to the president of the United States as the president of the youngest democracy. And he's got in his hands a small Torah. It's about this big. And it, it, it's a very significant Torah. It was one that was used by army chaplains during the war. It was owned by Jewish theological seminaries. It's a historical Torah. He's giving it to President Truman as a present, hands it to him, and, and Truman turns to him and says, thanks, I've always wanted one of those. <laughs> and, and, and so that was Weitzman. But my book is, it, is, is, to, is to fast backward, back to when Weitzman was in his early 40s. You, you may not even recognize the picture of him that's in the book. When he decided to go during the war to Palestine, cross over to meet with the commander-in-chief of the Arab army fighting the Arab revolt against the Ottoman Empire. And he does it, except you can't go from Jerusalem to the plains of Transjordan at that time because there were Turkish troops throughout the Jordan Valley. So to get there, Weitzman has to leave from Jerusalem he goes over to Tel Aviv. He goes down the coast in a train. He gets over to Cairo. Then he takes a dilapidated boat all the way around the Suez. He lands at the Gulf of Aqaba. He takes a car 75 miles north. The car breaks down. He has to travel the rest of the way by camel, and then the camel tires. And so he has to do the rest of the trip by foot. It takes him five days to get there. He gets there and he spent and and he looks over from there. He looks down on the Jordan Valley, and he and he's overwhelmed. He says, "This is where my ancestors came three thousand years ago, and looked exactly where I'm looking now, and I'm about to meet with the Arab commander in chief, which he does for one short, a little short of an hour, and they come to an agreement, or at least a, a meeting of the minds, that they both want." states for their peoples. And they go back to their respective quarters. And a year later, they meet in London under the tutelage of Lawrence of Arabia, who negotiates a written agreement between the two of them, under which the Zionist movement will support a state for the Arabs everywhere but Palestine, which is a huge area. And the Arabs will support the Jewish national home in Palestine. This is the first two-state solution more than 100 years ago. So that's Heim Weitzman. Um, then Jabotinsky, Vladimir Jabotinsky, probably the least well-known, most misunderstood uh, figure in 20th century Zionist history. Um, Jabotinsky, um, uh, the story that I tell is when he's in his early 50s, and the Peel Commission of Britain is trying to decide what to do with Palestine. You've got Arab, an Arab revolt going on. Britain has promised all of Palestine, which at that time is both sides of the Jordan, to the Jewish national home. And they decide that, well, they're going to give east of the Jordan, that part of Palestine, to the Arabs. 
And then they're going to divide west of the Jordan and a little postage stamp size area for the Jewish state. And there's a big debate within the Jewish Zionist community as to whether to accept this. It's a state. But Jabotinsky meets with members of members of parliament, um, the British Peel commissioners themselves, and personally with Winston Churchill right before the debate and convinces Churchill that if you relegate the Jews to this postage size state in about 5% of what was promised to them, you're talking about an area that's already populated with the density of England. There's no way that you're going to get millions of people to come from Europe. And he convinces Churchill, who writes an editorial that uses the same words in the memorandum that Jabotinsky gave to him. Okay, Golda Meir. Um, <laughs> when you look at the picture of her at age 18 um, in the book, uh, it's remarkable. She's a beautiful young woman. We remember her as the 71-year-old grandmother who became the prime minister. But she grew up her first eight years in Russia under horrible anti-Semitic autarky by the Tsar. And then she moves with her family. Her father leaves, goes and gets a job as a carpenter in Milwaukee. Her mother and her two sisters, the four of them, three years later are sent for by her father. They walk to the border. They pay border bribes. They have false identities. They escape. They get to Milwaukee. It's paradise. It's freedom. There's a socialist mayor. There's a socialist congressman. It's the, it's the head. It's the heyday of socialism in America. It's everything Golda has been dreaming of. And then the Balfour Declaration comes and she wants to move to Palestine. And she's uh, in love with a fellow socialist who's in love with her. And she says she won't get married unless he agrees that as soon as the war ends, they're going to Palestine. And he agrees. And so she goes to Palestine, and because of that, I mean, she, she had seen the two most extreme streams of history, dictatorship in Russia and democracy in America, and she moves to Palestine, which is really a frontier at that time. And um, nevertheless, she becomes one of the principal assets of Zionism because she speaks unaccented English. And she's a young, attractive woman. And she comes back to America and she literally makes, collects millions of dollars. Ben-Gurion would eventually describe her as the woman who got the money that made the state possible. That's a bit of a mystery, too. How do these things keep, keep happening? Um, and then Ben Hecht. Oh, my gosh. Um, ben Hecht. Uh, I'm going to abbreviate this a little because I'm starting to get hungry. But um, Ben Heck uh, never went to, he grew up on the Lower East Side to immigrant parents. He goes to the University of Wisconsin for one day and doesn't like college. He leaves, he goes to Chicago to be a writer. He writes a novel at age 27 that's reviewed tremendously uh, all across the country. He's a literary phenomenon. He writes short stories. He's a friend of Theodore Dreiser and Sherwood Anderson in Chicago. And he gets a telegram from Herman Mankiewicz, who's the head of Paramount Pictures in Hollywood, asking him to come to Hollywood to write screenplays for $300 a week. Actually, a lot of money in 1928 dollars. And the telegram reads, the $300 is peanuts. There are millions to be made out here, and idiots are your only competition. Don't let this get around. So he goes, and he writes the first screenplay for a gangster movie, gets the first Oscar for Best Original Story at the first Academy Awards the next year. He ends up writing um, 250 short stories that are made into movies, 65 screenplays, and as of 1939, he still has no connection with the Jewish community. He says, "My first, later on in his autobiography, he says, my first 40 years of my life, I never experienced any anti-Semitism whatsoever, which he says is probably a record for a Jew. 
or more likely a record for a country. But he, he meets almost by accident <clears throat> one of Jabotinsky's <clears throat> one, of, one of Jabotinsky's um, followers who convinces him that a Jewish army is needed for the, uh, to, to fight in Europe. And as a result, this tremendously successful um, screenwriter, the highest paid screenwriter, thank you, Mark, the highest paid screenwriter in Hollywood becomes the head of the movement for a Jewish army in America. Uh, Abba Iban, um, Abba, Abba, Abba Iban is appointed um, the day after Israel declares its independence to be Israel's representative in the UN. He's 33 years old. He's a former professor uh, at Oxford or Cambridge of Hebrew literature, Persian literature, and Arabic literature. And five days after his appointment, with five Arab armies invading Israel on three sides, he's in New York at the UN. It's his first week there. He's the youngest person there. And he gives a speech. I'm just going to read you one paragraph from this speech that this kid <laughs> addresses to the UN. He says, the sovereignty regained by an ancient people after its long march through the dark night of exile will not be surrendered at pistol point. And so it becomes my duty to make our attitude clear beyond ambiguity or doubt. If the Arab states want peace with Israel, they can have it. If they want war, they can have that too. But whether they want peace or war, they can have it only with the state of Israel. And this speech electrifies people in Israel. It electrifies the journalists who are watching. And it's not too many more speeches before he's being compared to Churchill in terms of his command of the English language and his use of it in diplomacy. And many of the speeches, I try to liberally quote from them in, in the chapter on, on Eban. You can read them and, and, and they, they jump off the page today for two reasons. One, they're so good. But two, the issues are still here. <laughs> uh, so they're quite relevant 70 years later. Um, okay, and finally, uh, Ron Dermer. Uh, Ron Dermer grows up in Florida to a... Um, a prominent um, Democratic family. His father is the mayor of Miami Beach. His elder brother is the mayor later on of Miami Beach. He goes to Penn, the Wharton School. He's on his way to, to get a graduate degree in London. He says, the last thing I would have expected is that my, uh, a couple of years later, I would be a diplomat representing the state of Israel. And what happened? Natan Sharansky was trying to establish a political party in Israel. And he goes to a person whom some of you may know, Frank Luntz. And Frank Luntz tells him he just taught a course in, Lund in, in Washington. And the best student he's ever had is this guy, Ron Dermer. He's the guy you want. So Ron Dermer um, goes to Israel. Various things happen. He writes a book with Sharansky. The book, The Case for Democracy, is obtained by George W. Bush the day it's published. They're brought to the White House to um, discuss it with Bush. The themes in that book become the themes in Bush's second inaugural address. And um, before you know it, Dermer has got a diplomatic career in Israel, except to be a diplomat representing a foreign country in the United States, you cannot be an American citizen. You can't have constitutional and legal protections and be a diplomat. So, so you have to give up your citizenship. So Dermer is willing to do it. And if you look at the one page document that you have to sign, it's only one page at the State Department, but they want to make it pretty clear. There's a lot of white space and only a few sentences. And it says, you understand, 
you're giving up your American citizenship. You cannot get it back. It's a very valuable thing. Are you sure sign under penalty of perjury? And Dermer does, but he appends to it an essay that he wrote. It's 625 words, and the title of the essay is Proud to Have Been an American. And uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's an essay that, you know, we, I think kids used to, um, I don't think they do now, but they used to memorize the Gettysburg Address. This speech, this essay, 625 words, ought to be memorized. I'm just going to read you like 100 words. Um, so Dermer writes, writes, for 33 years, I have felt America's warm embrace. I am eternally grateful for it. I was born in America, raised in America, and formed in America. I've been educated by the wisdom of its founders, inspired by the words of its leaders, and protected by the sacrifices of its soldiers. When I think of freedom, I think of Lincoln. When I think of courage, I think of Normandy. When I think of justice, I think of Martin Luther King Jr. America has shown me the power of freedom to change the lives of individuals, of nations, and of the world. I left America because I wanted to help another nation I love defend the freedoms that Americans have long taken for granted. In serving the state of Israel and in working to secure our common future, I will champion those ideals all my life. And he was just getting started. Um, it's a remarkable essay. And so those are the eight people I try to use in the book the stories, not simply to tell the individual stories, although they're all worth, you can get almost go wherever you want in the book and the story will stand on its own legs. But to explore really four more fascinating things. Um, one is, how does such a small people whose total population is a rounding error in the population of various countries and certainly the world produce these kind of people? And they produce them from all over the world. Herzl was born in Budapest, Brandeis in Louisville, Weizmann in a shtetl that had 8,000 people, one road and a one-room school, Jabotinsky in the sophisticated city of Odessa, Golda Meir grew up in Milwaukee, Ben Hecht on the Lower East Side, Rabbi Eban grew up in London, and Dermer in Miami Beach. And yet all of them, from all these places in this small people create these kinds of individuals. And secondly, I realized that if I put them in chronological order, then they would effectively be a history of Zionism. From 1895, uh, when, when, when uh, Herzl wrote The Jewish State, all the way to 2015, when Dermer drafted the speech that Bibi Netanyahu gave before the joint session of Congress opposing the Iran deal. It's 120 years of Jewish, Zionist, and Israeli history through the lives of individuals. And what I found was you can teach history better, not at 30,000 feet with a general narrative, but all the way down to the bottom in the, in the, <clears throat> in the stories of individuals. A third, I found that these stories could illustrate the intersection of Zionism and Americanism. Because four of these people grew up in Europe, born or raised, four of them in America, and the cross-section, the cross-fertilization of Americanism, which is the civil religion of freedom and democracy, and Zionism, which is the movement for a free and democratic Jewish state, um, helped each other. And certainly the story of Zionism requires uh, uh, understanding the story of, of Americanism as well. And finally, um, some lessons about history and the teaching of history. Um, in the, the last chapter, the conclusion of the book is called, I called it the trusteeship of history, because one of my favorite quotes of Brandeis is that, 
we are trustees of our history with a, tre a, a treasure to cherish, and we are charged to carry forward what others in the past have borne so well. So it's important not only to know history, but to understand the obligation that it, it puts on us. And after I wrote the book, after it was uh, at the printer, I found a quotation of, <laughs> from Sir Roger Scruton. Um, and uh, this is it, and then I'll end and, and, and go to questions. Scruton said, we do not merely study the past, we inherit it. And inheritance brings with it not only rights of ownership, but the duties of trusteeship. Things fought for and died should not be idly squandered, for they are the property of others who are not, who are not yet born. So that's what the book is about, the eight stories. Um, uh, it'll be worth at least what you pay for it tonight. And, uh, and I'm glad to do questions. See if that works. Thank you. First of all, thank you for the wonderful presentation. Um, and I want to know when you, first of all, because I'm going to ask about your selection, did you know when you started the eight stories you were going to choose? I did not. You did not. Um, you, <clears throat> it's nice of you to assume I had a plan. Um, I didn't assume, I just asked. <laughs> um, no, I, I the, the experience, the, these stories uh, came to me because I either read or reviewed um, biographies that were published and they left me with a bunch of questions. And usually the questions were the biographies would state things and I would want support for it. So I started looking at primary documents. And as a result, I, the more I looked at it, the more I got into it and I finally put them. So here's the easiest question. If I opened this book and I didn't know who you were gonna choose, I would say Ben-Gurion has gotta be in and Dermer's gotta be out. Because every, first of all, everybody else has passed away except for Dermer. Everybody else is a, in some ways a sort of major world historical figure other than Dermer. I mean, you could argue that about Ben Hecht, but I think for people who know. So why no Ben-Gurion and why Dermer? So one of my friends looked at the table of contents and he said it ought to be an SAT question. Which, which name on here? <laughs> One of these things is not like the other. Yeah. I remember that from... You've, you've got yeah. eight historical figures right. who've lived full lives and a guy who was ambassador in his mid-40s. Yeah. And the reason Dermer is in there and the reason Ben-Gurion is not... Well, let me start with Ben-Gurion first. Ben-Gurion is not... Um, for two reasons. One is so much is known about him. Uh, there's so many books, so many biographies. It wasn't necessary. You know, Churchill said after World War II, um, I think history is going to treat me very well because I intend to write it. Right. And, and Ben-Gurion wrote it. Um, uh, Rick Lieberman doesn't know this, but uh, when I was at his house, one time I find on the shelf an 800-page book by Ben-Gurion called Israel, My Story, <laughs> 800 pages. And, and, and guess who's a major figure in that, you know, in that, in that story? So um, one, it wasn't necessary. Two, to do it, I mean, you're, you, in a sense, you're right. He should be there. But, but, but to do it, I would have to read all those biographies and read all of the source documents, and I'd still be writing. <laughs> so that's why Dermer is in there, because, and the logic of Dermer is that these are not just eight stories. It's almost like there's an invisible baton that's handed from one to the other, from generation to generation, and it ends with a guy who's the present guy 
of who was the guy who had to articulate for eight years in the Trump administration and the Obama administration, Israel's case. So why not Netanyahu? <laughs> I told you I was going to be brutal. In my, <laughs> you've seen my next book. I mean, oh, okay. Uh, All right, fine. Uh, no. By the way, I just want you to know, it's not out in paperback. Um, the way books work is they go paperback to hardback to paperback. <laughs> so I have an advanced reader's copy, which is why I have a paperback. But you will all be getting a hardback. Unless, well, you'll be getting a hardback, but then in however many months after the hardback is done, <laughs> you can get a paperback, um, but you'll be behind the times. So go ahead. <laughs> so, so it was, it, it, actually, Bibi makes a fairly significant appearance yeah. in the Dermer yes. chapter. But, um, you know, uh, probably the historical school is still out on, on Netanyahu is where things end up. So he's, it's not quite ready, really, to write about him. Um, so one, I mean, I asked you, let's full transparency. I asked you in advance, are there questions that you want to address? And you gave me a couple of really wonderful questions, including um, a, a form of the one I just asked, but one that you asked that actually is a question that I've read about a great deal. Sidney Hook wrote a, a really wonderful book about this, is basically do, do exceptional individuals make history? Or are we riding on a huge wave that would happen no matter what? Um, and your, your book is clearly on the great, great people. I don't want to say great men because Golda Meir was not. Great people make history. Is that, your, is that your read? Would Israel have happened without these exceptional individuals? There is a theory of history, as you know, by Thomas Carlyle. Yeah who said that all of history is but the biography of great men and women. He didn't say women, but that's what he meant. Women, yeah. um, he had a bad marriage. <laughs> he actually did, but that's another story. Um, I actually disagree with that. I, I, I think these are there, there could have been eight more of these people. The, these are not the people who created Israel. They're the type of people who created Israel. And rather than the great man theory of history that we're all the beneficiaries of, of great men and what they do, I, th there ought to be a, a small individual theory of history. It's these individuals who choose to commit their lives to something so much greater than themselves and actually take the steps to move to the frontier, to give up their citizenship, Jabotinsky gave up a, a literary career that could have been one of the finest yeah. in, in Russia, gave it up, um, which was a major thing for a Russian Jew to do, to become a full-time Zionist. And, and so many of these individuals did this that I, I, I don't think, at least from what I did for the book, I don't think history is these major economic or political or diplomatic waves or great people. I think history is is us actually. So um, the, the thing that struck me also in part, is, and you mentioned this when you just talked about Jabotinsky, is at least three of these people, four actually, were primarily literati. That mm. is Herzl was a writer before he became Herzl. Um, Jabotinsky was a writer, Hecht was a writer, and Abba Eben was a professor of literature. Right. So, can you, is there some reason, is it the story, the narrative, is there some reason why you think literary people were especially drawn to Zionism? It's a great question. Um, wish I could answer it. Um, uh, it. It can't be completely a general rule because the difficulty I had with the Golda Meir chapter was she never wrote anything. Mm. She didn't write letters. Wow. She didn't keep a diary. She wrote an autobiography that was quite interesting and a bestseller, but it was ghostwritten. Um, so it's not, you know, it's, it's action as well as words. I, I don't know, we're a people of the book, we're, we're, we're a people of words. It's words, it's, it's ideas that, that, that move things. Um, so maybe, that, maybe that's a partial answer to your question.
Uh, one other thing that I noticed about the selections is none of these people grew up in the Middle East. And this is basically a European slash American story in a sense. Why do you think it was that very few of the major Zionist figures came from the Middle Eastern world? At least in the early years that we're talking about, there weren't many people at all, including Arabs in, 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 in Palestine. Well, I don't just mean Palestine. I mean the Middle East, in Iran, in Iraq, in um, Babylon, which had significant Jewish populations, but were not involved so much in the Zionism. I don't know. It, it, it may reflect uh, an ignorance on my or our part that we don't have the the documents, the sources, the writings of people from, from that area. Do, do you have a thought? I, I just, I assume that it was in part an enlightenment nationalistic project and it just, those nations were not, I mean, there were no nationalistic movements in those nations yet. So there's, there's an interesting story about Ben-Gurion. Um, Ben-Gurion grew up in, in, in a very small, I don't know if it was technically a shtetl, but a small town. And he's very smart. And his father uh, wanted him to go to university. Uh, and Ben-Gurion decided, no, he wouldn't. He, he did not want to go to, to effectively college to, to study. He wanted to be what he called a worker. He wanted, he wanted to devote his life to socialism, but do it in Palestine. And so he left Plonsk, which was the name of his town. He was a teenager. He left his family behind. He travels to Palestine and he writes in his diary about how excited he is as the ship is approaching the shore and he's about to see the promised land. And he gets there and he looks at, at Jaffa and he said, and his, his first words and, and there are, this is worse than Plonsk. <laughs> so, <laughs> and Ben-Gurion, and Ben-Gurion ben, ben was, you know, he was a man of action and words. We know the actions. He read Greek literature in the original Greek. Even though he never went to higher education, he educated himself. He had a huge library. So he was, maybe you need both. Jabotinsky was the same. He was a, a, a great figure in, in Russian and Jewish literature, but he also was the one who organized the first uh, organized Jewish military force, the Jewish Legion, in almost 2,000 years. So how is it that all of these people, with the exception here of, of I suppose, uh, Golda Meir and maybe Ava Iben, but all of them came from dictatorships and ended up establishing a democracy? It's, it, it, it's an amazing fact. They had no military experience and they created the IDF. They had no military experience. They had no um, self-government experience. Uh, they were going to a place where um, there were kings. The, the, the Torah has, or the, the Tanakh has kings in it. Why didn't they establish a kingdom instead of a democracy, but they did. Um, it's extraordinary the innovation that they brought um, to this isolated part of the world. So I'm gonna ask one more question. Um, if you had to pick one more person to put in here. Okay, um, that's very tough. Um, Two more. Two more, okay. Okay, two more, because I want to get to the second. The, the first one would be Jacob de Haas. Jacob de Haas is a 25-year-old kid. When Herzl comes to um, London to address the Maccabean Club, which is the intellectual height in London society, and they listen to Herzl, and he tells them about the Jewish state and and behind their hands, they're laughing at Herzl. This is crazy. You know, we know you work for a great paper, but this is this is crazy. 25-year-old Jacob de Haas comes up to him afterwards and says, you know they were laughing at you, even though they were very polite. 
I have a way for you to proceed. Herzl says, meet me at my hotel for breakfast at 7.30 tomorrow. He does. He becomes, uh, Jacob de Haas becomes Herzl's lieutenant in London. And he's the guy that Herzl sends to America who meets Brandeis, who effectively gets Brandeis on board for Zionism. I located Jacob de Haas archives at the Central Zionist Archives right before the pandemic. I found a student who would go over there and get it for me. Uh, and since I, I, I don't read, you know, conversational Hebrew, they were going to translate it for me too. And then the pandemic hit and everything shut down and that went away. So we they didn't do it. Not to my knowledge. And Jacob de Haas wrote himself the first English biography of Herzl, two volumes. Amazing guy. Um, the other thing that I really, if I had time and world enough, I would like to write is the spouses of these people. The, it, they're, they're, they made remarkable sacrifices. Paula Ben-Gurion was left alone by Ben-Gurion for nine months while he went to Ameri London and then America to fight for a, or to, to support a, a Jewish army. She was there with their kids and she didn't have a profession but she made it possible for Ben-Gurion to do what he did. And when Ben-Gurion retired, this is apocryphal, but it sounds true. Ben-Gurion, they were at the, the Sid Boker, the kibbutz, and Ben-Gurion's reading a history of the Jewish people. And he puts the history down, he turns to Paul and he says, do you know how many great Jewish leaders there have been in 3,000 years? And Paul uh, says, yes, I do. And, and he says, you do? She says, yes, I do. And he says, okay, how many? And she says, one less than you think. <laughs> she, <laughs> she, was, she was a remarkable person. And, and the, the, it, it's, not, it's not a male-female thing. Morris Meyerson, who went with Golda to Palestine, didn't want to be there. Golda was not a great wife. She was not a great mother. She was gone fighting for Zionism. And he, who didn't want to be there and was lonely without her, raised their kids. It's a very and died early. It's a very sad story. Uh, but but he made possible what she did. And each one of these spouses are in itself a remarkable story. So somebody out there should write it. So, <laughs> go ahead. Yes. All of the above. Uh, uh, it, it, it's the baton, I think, is a sense that there were people before us, people coming after us, and we are part of a continuum. We're, we're not just who we are at the present time. We have an obligation to the past, the present, and the future. And these were people who who for one reason or another, some religious, some not, mostly not religious, decided to grab the baton of Jewish history. That's the way I would, the way I would describe it and keep it going and to, be, to enable it to progress and to pass on to the future. Who do you think had the most prescient view of what was going to happen to the Jews in Europe? Mm. Pretty easy. Yeah. Jabotinsky. Yeah. Well, I thought Herzl, Herzl might have some... Okay. Yeah, he might come in second. How about that? He came in second. He, he, no, he, there's a strong case for him in, yeah. in, in, in being first. Um, but um, Jabotinsky in 1939 on Tisha B'Av, or 38, 38, on Tisha gave a speech in Warsaw. And he said, I see a volcano coming. Time is limited. 
I know you don't see it. You're busy with day-to-day things. But you must get out. And those of you who do, not me, but my son, will see a Jewish state. And he was able to see uh, uh, something terrible and something beautiful in the same same vision. And to a certain extent, that that's, that, that describes Herzl, too. Herzl was able to see the danger. He didn't. He thought there was no future for Jews in Europe. He, he didn't think there was going to be anything like a Holocaust, but he saw the danger and the lack of a future. Difficult question. Are you optimistic about the future of Israel's reputation in the world, especially among Jews? Forget who said this. It's, it's, it's somebody who's like a Jewish historian that he was pessimistic about the future, but optimistic about the past. Hmm. If part of our problem is that we don't know this history. And so Someone else said, we're still in the seventh day of the six-day war. Everybody's memory goes back to very few people know of a time when there wasn't an Israel or there was an Israel with a nine-mile border in its center. They only know what happened after the six-day war. And there is a 60-year history of Zionism that precedes it. Um, And uh, they don't know, for example, that that either the Zionist movement before Israel or Israel after it became a state offered the Palestinians a state seven different times. You have a list in here in one of the footnotes. Yeah. I remember of like, it's a long list of, we made this offer and 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 this it, offer. It's a huge yeah. list. Yeah. And you, you don't, kids especially, younger people don't know it. They think the Palestinians have been oppressed time immemorial, and they have, in fact, been offered a state. Now, that's not to say that there's one side that's all right and one side that's all wrong, but you need to know the whole history in order to come to a a reasoned or informed opinion, and that's what we're lacking, and I don't think we're getting on college campuses. I don't think it's being taught. Um, uh, Judy may leave the room if I say this uh, because she's heard it so many times, but every time I was working on this, I would say, why wasn't I? Why didn't somebody tell me about this? Why was I had such a good secular education, a very good Jewish education? All this stuff was new to me. How come I didn't know it? And the short answer was my teachers didn't know it either. But the, 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 the longer answer is we forgot it. We forgot it as a people. We were happy here in particular. And uh, even in Israel, um, when I was working on my first book, um, about the 1940 campaign for Jewish army when Weitzman, Jabotinsky, and Ben-Gurion were all here for months, not talking to each other. That's another old Jewish story, but they were all here for months. And um, so the documentary filmmaker on a new documentary on Ben-Gurion was here, and I said to him, I know everybody know in Israel knows about Ben-Gurion, but what about Weitzman and Jabotinsky? Do they know about them? And they, the filmmaker says to me, it's worse than you think. They think Ben-Gurion is an airport. So they, 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 they don't know the history even, even in Israel, much less the United States. So, I, you know, we have a job to do in terms of teaching. Uh, first, I want to say, Rick, it's, it's just a marvelous, marvelous book. And it's not simply a book for all of us in this room to read but we must give it to our children and our grandchildren. Because Rick, you wrote it to educate the next generations. And um, uh, I certainly intend on doing that. Is there any personality trait that ties all these eight together? I mean, one thing I was thinking was that 
at least from reading your book, that all eight were had no self-doubt. They knew exactly where they wanted to go and nothing was going to deter them once they had that mission in mind. Um, is, is that an accurate way to uh, see these people? Or is there some other personality trait that uh, really uh, flows right through all of them? That's a great observation, Kerry. Um, it may be correct at a point in time once they became sure. But take Herzl, for example. Herzl tried to assimilate into Viennese society. That was his goal. That was his parents' goal for him. And when anti-Semitism became such a big problem in Eastern Europe, one of his first ideas was that all the Jewish children should convert to Christianity. And he said, it won't be the Jewish adults. We don't want anything. We don't want any benefit for ourselves. But we will have conversions if, if for one, for one exchange and one thing in exchange the pope will come out against anti-semitism but that was his idea he went to his uh his boss the editors of the the paper he worked for they were two jewish editors who were anti-zionist they told him you have no right to say that in public um so that was herzl's view until he comes across this idea of the jewish state and once he has the idea he devotes his life to it were they were they all witty as I'm looking down the list, I think every one of them was witty. I don't know. I don't know if Brandeis was such a funny guy, but everybody else, Herzl was, Weitzman was, Javatinsky was, Golda Meir was, Ben Hecht was, Abba Even certainly was. You they're, know? they're very eloquent. They really yeah. are. It, it, it's You just read some of these quotes and they're way better than I could do myself. Uh, my question is... Uh, based on the comment that the rabbi made that how come no one from Middle East were in there 2,500 years ago, Cyrus the Great allowed Jews to go back right. to Israel or to Palestine and build it. Do you think that uh, comment or that writing that he had that's still all over had anything to do maybe subliminal in all of these people thinking in Europe that there should be a, there should be an Israel, there should be a home for Jews? I don't know the answer to your question, Jimmy. It's a good question. Um, there, there are one, one of the aspects of the Jewish people being dispersed, expelled and dispersed, is that there are so many ideas from all over the world that get incorporated into Jewish thinking. And people make a mistake when they think Zionism was one thing. There was religious Zionism. There were communists who were Zionists. There was organic Zionism. There was, there was Jabotinsky's revisionist Zionism. There was Ben-Gurion's labor Zionism. There were other forms of Zionism and the intellectual competition between them invigorated Zionism as a whole. And if it had been one thing, it probably would have been too brittle a theology or, or, or a philosophy to survive. So it's it probably a long way of answering yes to your question, but there, there, there are so many influences that, that And also there were nationalisms bear. in Europe, like Mazzini and Italian nationalism that arose around the same time. And people started to believe that like national identity mattered, which wasn't so... We didn't have nations the same way before, so. Absolutely. Um, thank you, Rick, for, for this book. Uh, it, it is a treasure. I find especially your story about Time Wiseman's five-day uh, tr trip to meet with the commander of the Arab army and uh, agree that there would be two uh, states, uh, fascinating. Uh, how widely known is that story? Who was this uh, uh, Arab commander and how come um, it's, it's not really referred to much as we discuss the two-state solution? You know, the story has been, been out there. It's just ancient history, which is the real reason why it, I think it's not known. But the the commander 
was uh, Faisal bin Hussein. Hussein was the king of what was then called Hejaz, is now part of Saudi Arabia. And so his father, the king, was the ruler of Medina and Mecca. So he was not just a military commander in chief, he was the son of the ruler of the most holy places of, of Islam. So when, when Weizmann was meeting with him, he was meeting effectively the leader of the Arabs at the time, at a time when there was no Arab state other than maybe you would call, Saudi Arabia didn't actually exist. Saudi Arabia came later. So that's who it was. Rick, thank you so much for your book. Um, you were to write the next book about the non-Jews who made Israel possible. I think we have some clues from what you've written who some of these people were. I was wondering if you want to just talk about with some of these people. Well, <clears throat> Harry Truman, for starters, perhaps. Truman was a very... Uh, there's a, we don't know enough about Truman. There are people who think he was a Christian Zionist. Not clear he may have been, not, not clear. He certainly was knowledgeable about the Bible. He had been brought up and he and Clark Clifford would look at maps of ancient Israel to try and decide where the borders of this new state could le legitimately be. Um, there are people in England, I mean, Churchill, Churchill played a very significant role back in 1922 in, um, in determining what they then thought would be a, a fair solution for the Arabs and the Jews to have west of the Jordan River to be the Jewish national home and east to be for the Arabs. Um, that did not work out, but Churchill was, a, was really the, the one who, who developed that idea. And Lawrence of Arabia, uh, was who, who we all think of as being an Arab partisan, was a personal friend of, uh, of Heim Weizmann and was a pro-Zionist who helped Weizmann's efforts all along the way. So yeah, I'm glad for that question because it's not just a Jewish story. Rick, thank you for the evening. Can everybody hear me? Yeah? Oh. Um, why did you choose Ron Dermer? I'm not sure about um, his writings, as opposed to somebody like Michael Oren, who has written prodigiously and has been a very, very strong supporter of State of Israel, also giving up his citizenship to become ambassador to the United States. The United States. Yeah, Dermer, um, um, Michael Oren, uh, a very important figure. Um, he was the ambassador who preceded Ron Dermer. Um, he was not there for some of the events that I thought were the most significant in terms of, of Israeli-American history. And he did not get... It, when you look at Dermer's speeches, and I read all of them because um, he put them on Facebook so I could collect every speech that he gave. And when you read them, they're, they're, Dermer, they're, they're extraordinary speeches. They're just extraordinary. And somebody ought to publish a book of those speeches. And then, then you, I mean, Oren is, is, a, is a renowned historian. He certainly wrote the definitive book on the Six-Day War. Dermer, in terms of putting Zionism into philosophical and political context in the course of current events, I, I don't think there's anybody like him. Herschel? Last question, please. I always, I've read a lot. I read a lot about uh, Churchill was wanted the state of Israel to be born. And I've heard that he promised Palestine to both Israeli, the Jews and the Arabs. And he intentionally made it like the British always do. They want the war to exist forever and ever. And he promised both, as I said, Palestine to both sides. And he could have finished it in such a way that there would be peace afterwards. He wanted to make sure that war goes on forever and ever. Is that, is that true or not? Was he pro-Jews or was he not? I've read, I've read both sides of it. Who are you talking Churchill. about? Churchill. Churchill. I, I, would, I, would, I would say a very high percentage, close to 
of support for the Jews. The, 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 the fact that some people think he wasn't uh, comes, comes largely from the fact that he was the author of the plan that split Palestine between east of the Jordan and west of the Jordan. The Balfour Declaration itself, at the time of the Balfour Declaration, Palestine covered all of Jordan as well as all of everything west of, west of the Jordan. So um, some of the, uh, of the doubt about Churchill, I think, comes from that. But um, everything I've read, including some of the speeches that he gave, some of the things that he gave in private conversations, I, I don't have much doubt about it. But, but you're correct that there is literature out there that suggests that it was... Well, the British government is 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 different than Churchill, um, and Churchill. <laughs> I mean, presidents have this problem too. You can't move the bureaucracy just because you issue an order. And Churchill ran into that kind of problem more than once. Thanks to Rick, to Michael, to all of you. Now it's time for dinner. Thank, thank you, Rabbi Wolpe. Thank you. Rick, for a wonderful dialogue. I appreciated everyone's questions because uh, um, I think it, it spiced up uh, a wonderful discussion already. So uh, just two closing items. Uh, one is uh, there is a men's club co-sponsored event next, uh, next Tuesday, the 28th at 630. And uh, Rabbi Wolpe will actually be in dialogue with the Jerusalem Post uh, senior correspondent to the Knesset, uh, Lahav Harkov. So that starts at 6.30 next week. This here is, is something that the men's club is participating with, uh, the Israel Center and Rabbi Taff in, in setting this up. So one, I want to invite everybody. That's next Tuesday at 6.30 p.m. And also, if you're... Joining to dinner tonight, I just want to share, if you're able to contribute, since uh, actually the start of this year, GLAT kosher food has gone up significantly. Uh, and we're, by the way, a very cost-conscious organization. Um, so it's being set up right now. Uh, there's a, a suggested uh, donation towards it. Uh, if you can participate, we would be so grateful. And with that being said, you'll see uh, our March event come out shortly. And thank you so much for everyone coming out tonight. Wonderful to see everyone. Thank you.